Well, we are here talking about 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Question to consider before we pray. Uh, should be there on your handout. Uh, what practical effects does our union with Christ have on our everyday lives? Consider things such as relationships with family, fellow believers, and the world, and service in the church. So, might be thinking back to the, uh, the last ABF um, section that we did on the Holy Spirit, gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, Holy, the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, union with Christ, those sorts of things. Um, so let me pray and then we'll read the text. Our great trying God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for this morning, for this opportunity that you've given to us to come together as brothers and sisters to the blood of your Son, Christ, and the work of your Holy Spirit in your house on your day. Thank you for your word that you have blessed us with. You have revealed yourself in sufficient detail for uh, all life and godliness. We pray that you would be with us through your Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our minds illuminate our hearts, we would behold wonderful things from your law, and that the things that we say and do here this morning would be glorifying to you, edifying to our fellow believers, and that you would spread your kingdom through this church. For all these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, so First Peter 4, I will read the first 11 verses, and then we'll kind of break it down further from there. So this is verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so what do you guys think? What practical effects does our union with Christ have on our everyday lives? You can... Answer that question generally. You can answer it with uh, relation to uh, relationships, service, or you can answer it in a different way. Well, it should be something that causes non-believers to notice something's different about us. Okay. Like here in verse four, he says it's just strange that we do not participate in sin with them. Mm-hmm. And like I'm actually had that at work. My boss um, called me a goody two-shoes because he's like you. Just conduct yourself in a way that's different. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, I'm not calling you that as an insult. And I told him, like, even if you were, I don't take it as such. But, like, that should make a difference. I believe it should be like, why will you not participate with us when we sin? Sure, sure. Good. What else? Well, it says in um, verse 1, um, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so everything has to come through that filter. Right. So that no matter what you're confronted with at work or with family, you have to respond mm-hmm. um, the way that Christ would want you to respond. Yeah, great. You guys are anticipating further discussion. So if I ask questions that you've already answered. It's not because I think your answer is wrong. It's just because I'm going to ask it again. So, good. Anything else? 
All right, so uh, let's move to a review, um, suffering and submission. So <clears throat> I was not here last week. I was in the, the high school class, uh, but I listened to Pastor Mott's lesson on chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. I want you guys to tell me what did you learn about suffering last week? Yes, yeah, so it's, um, I think Pastor Mock brought up the, the verse, you know, a servant is not greater than his master, right? So if Christ suffers, the master suffers, then his servants can expect to suffer. We'll talk more about that in, in detail next week. Uh, you know, Peter says, don't, don't be surprised when you suffer, right? It's not a foreign thing. It shouldn't be a surprise, okay? What else? What else about suffering? I wasn't here last week, but I'm still okay. kind of focused on this first one, mm-hmm. uh, which says no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So I think suffering needs to be, um, you know, um, constrained to we do it for his sake, not for our own sake. Yeah, yeah. And, and we'll talk more about that as well next week. If you remember, Peter says, you know, if you suffer for holiness, for godliness, that's good. But don't suffer because you're breaking the law or because you're sinning. That's not, that's not good suffering. Um, okay. What else? Okay, we'll, we'll come back to that. That's what sort of the first two verses. We'll talk a lot about that. So uh, one study Bible that I read, the, the Reformation Heritage Study Bible, titled this section, 1 through 11, as submission to one another. Okay, so submission has been a theme in First Peter, we've seen. So what sorts of things have we learned about submission in First Peter? Okay, good. So, wives submit to husbands, husbands submit to Christ, everyone submits to the authorities. Um, so, it's not um, it's not that there's one category of people that are called to submit, everyone is, is called to submit. Okay. Um, and we'll talk about We'll talk about submission to one another as it relates to this section near the end. Um, okay, so verses 1 and 2, I'll, I'll read them again so they're fresh in our mind. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. <clears throat> okay, so as always, uh, Peter when, when someone uses uh, a therefore, the, the King James has for as much, which I think is a really cool word. Um, but therefore is referring to something else, right? It's, it's calling our mind to something that he has said previously. So to what does the therefore refer in verse 1? Yeah, Christ's suffering. If you look back at uh, chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. All right, so Christ's suffering. So, And, and he even says that you know, in the very next uh, clause, if you will, Christ suffered in the flesh. So since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh. Why is Peter bringing up Jesus' suffering in the flesh. He sympathizes with us because we also suffer in the flesh. 
Okay, so <clears throat> yeah, it might be a little bit of uh, identification with Christ. Um, again, um, pointing out that we we suffer uh, be, because Christ suffered. Yeah, could be. Uh, it was foretold. I'm sorry. It was foretold, right? This is mm-hmm. prophecy of the Messiah, right? The suffering servant. Yeah. Uh, he would be hung on a tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's to, it's to fulfill Scripture. Mm-hmm. Is part of God's plan. Yeah. And uh, you cannot have the forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. However, the shedding of blood. Of Bulls and rams, as it states in right previously, mm-hmm. is does not wipe away sin. Mm-hmm. Only the shedding of the blood of the Messiah, the mm-hmm. Christ, will we get forgiveness of sins, and that is why he had to suffer. Yeah, yeah. So again, looking at chapter three, verse eighteen, um, he he suffered uh, for. For sins, not for sins that he had done, right? For our sins. Uh, he was put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, so that, uh, yeah, so that we could be forgiven, to, to take away our sins. Um, uh, Ruling Elder Harry Merides often brings up the point that in Scripture, the uh, imperatives come after indicatives. Um, does anybody want to take a stab at explaining what that means? The indicatives are those things which have happened. Mm-hmm. Right. And the imperative is right, how we respond to that. Right. Right. So you can think of um, the indicatives as, as doctrine, right? And the imperatives as our response to that doctrine. So... I think what Peter's doing here is he's calling our attention to the indicative that Christ suffered in the flesh. He is pointing out to us that Christ died for our sins. And what is the imperative that follows from that? In the rest of verse 1 and 2. Okay, yes. Live for the will of God instead of uh, for human passions. That's one. There's more. What are the commands that Peter is giving us in light of the fact that Jesus suffered in the flesh? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, right? That's a command. So uh, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, live not uh, for human passions, but for the will of God. Uh, and, and he kind of sneaks a, another indicative, and it's not sneaking in there. I'm not <clears throat> that sounds bad, sounds bad, accusing him of sneaking something in there. But I'm sorry? Yeah, uh, he, he has another indicative in there. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased, for, ceased from sin. Um, and we'll talk about that in a second. So, so our two imperatives, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, and no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. Um, so how can we arm ourselves with the same way of thinking? Or, reading God's Word. Okay, reading God's Word, good. Um, what is the same way of thinking? Let's just let's define it first. What does Paul mean when he says, or excuse me, Peter, what does Peter mean when he says the same way of thinking? To what is he referring Would be to think through the the glasses of love, if you will, that Jesus loved, and He did what He did through His love for the people. people. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, my question was more general. Uh, think the same way as the Gentiles. Anybody that's a non-believer, the believer, way you advocate. Okay, uh, no. <laughs> he's, he, he's saying arm yourselves. He's telling us to think the same way as someone. Right, 
Christ. As Christ, right, as Jesus. So because Christ suffered in the flesh, we are to think the same way as Christ did. Okay? Uh, how are we able to think in the same way as Christ? So, so reading scripture, certainly. Um, all of the means of grace, right? Word, sacrament, prayer. Um, what else? Or, or what is behind what makes us able to think in the same way as Christ? The Holy Spirit. And uh, I'm, I, so I'm thinking of union with Christ through the Holy Spirit, right? So because we are, um, when we are justified, when we are regenerated, we are united with Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit applies Christ's work to us, and uh, we are enabled to think in the same way as Christ. This phrase, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, makes me think of Romans chapter 12, verse 2. This is another example of uh, imperatives coming after indicatives. Chapter 12, uh, a, a great chapter full of good imperatives, good commands, in light of the truth of God and what he has done for us. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's the negative command, do not be conformed to this world. There's a positive command, do be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And um, in one sense, the renewal of our mind happens uh, immediately because we are regenerated and we are enabled to, um, to do what is pleasing to God, not perfectly, obviously. In another sense, the renewal of our mind is, is a process. As we sit under the preached word, as we take the sacraments, as we pray, as we read our Bibles, our mind is being transformed uh, into the same way of thinking as Christ. That's part of what it means to be made uh, like Christ. Okay? Let's look at... Um, the, the last phrase in verse 1, Peter says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Is Peter teaching uh, that sinless perfection is possible? Is it possible to suffer in the flesh enough so that you may cease from sin? He says no. Why not? Because we have a sinful nature. Okay. Yes, I agree with you. We cannot but sin apart from Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, even in Christ, you will continue to sin because it is your nature. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, these things are unchristlike because that is our the nature of man. Yeah, yeah. So we still have remaining sin, we still have uh, indwelling sin. Um, but we have a desire not to sin. Yes. Yeah. Which can help us recognize what we're about to do or say as sin. Mm -hmm. um, and the Holy Spirit can help us with that. We will still sin, I agree with. Whatever my name is. I agree with Keith that we will still sin. Jones' husband. <laughs> yeah, so um, as there, there's a helpful, uh, although sometimes potentially confusing, um, sort of a rubric to think about uh, humanity. In the garden before the fall, Adam and Eve were able not to sin, but they were also able to sin, obviously because they did sin, right? Unregenerate humanity is not able not to sin, okay? So um, when you are fallen in sin before you are uh, converted, all you are able to do is sin. When we are regenerated, we are able not to sin, like he's talking about. We are also still able to sin. Then looking forward to our, our glorification in heaven, we will not be able to sin. That's kind of the progression of um, of ability to sin. So, yes, unregenerate humanity, not able not to sin. 
we as Christians are able not to sin. We are able to do things that are pleasing to God, not in our own power, obviously, only through the working of the Holy Spirit and our progressive sanctification. But we are still able to sin. We are not sinlessly perfect. Um, what do we call... Do, do you guys know who um, in church history taught this, uh, this heresy that there is... It's possible for a human to be sinless. Pelagius, Pelagius right. Um, who was Pelagius? He was a monk. Conversations with St. Augustine. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Stating that uh, the, uh, there was a remnant, basically, of the sinlessness of Adam before the fall. Yeah, so so we're thinking around Augustine's time frame, fourth fourth century. Um, the doctrine of original sin was not uh, as widely accepted as it is now. I mean, I guess it's not widely accepted even now, but um, it was not a settled doctrine. So so Pelagius uh, disagreed with Augustine about the doctrine of original sin and um, thought that. It could lead to um, like moral corruption, right? Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to preserve the moral duty of Christians to um, live good lives, and he taught that that you could live a sinless life. What is some scripture that we can point to that that shows that this teaching of Pelagius is false? How can we refute this with scripture? All sin falls short of the glory of God. Good. What else? We are like sheep have gone astray. Okay, good. Anyone who says he is without sin is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Yes. And not just they're a liar, they're calling God a liar, which is not a great thing to do, right? Also, think of Romans 7. Yes, remember Romans 7, Paul. Uh, this is particularly verses 15 through 25. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So it is now no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So there's that that tension that we're talking about between uh, the desire to live according to God's uh, law and the remaining corruption in our hearts and our minds and our wills. Um, okay, good. So let's look at verse 2. It says, uh, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. I want you to think about this verse and think about a current uh, controversy in the PCA uh, regarding side B, revoice, uh, gay Christians. Is there a connect? I mean, I see a connection there, so I guess th- does anyone else see a connection there? And what is that connection? And how does how can this verse speak to that controversy? Well, by them saying that you could be a celibate. Gay Christian, they're trying to say they can still live in the flesh and for the will of God at the same time. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. It's one or the other. Okay, good. Yeah, it's um, there is an aspect of revoice or side B uh, theology that says that um, that I mean, I don't think they say this, but kind of logically implied in that is that you can identify with sinful desires. So homosexuality is a sin. If you call yourself a gay Christian, you are identifying with a sinful desire. But what Peter is saying here is that uh, we are not to live our time in the flesh here on earth for human passions, for sin, but for the will of God. The will of God is, for us, is not sinful, right? It's that we not sin. So we can't identify with the interesting thing about that doctrine, theology, philosophy, 
ideology is you know, they don't make those exceptions for the other deadly sins. Right. Or for any sin. Right? I'm just saying, you know, yep. it's only for that one. Yeah. So you should still not beat your wife or steal or those things. But that one, that's okay. Right, right. There's a not... Word I'm thinking of. Not a consistent application of the principle. Right? Okay. Good. Okay, let's move on to, to verses 3 through 6. I'll read those again. Uh, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, so uh, he says the time that is past. What is he referring to there? Yeah, yeah, before we were saved. You know, my, my hope for my children, I think any parents' hope for their children is that they would never remember that time before they were saved. But for some of us, we do remember the time before we were saved. And particularly if Peter is writing to, you know, Peter is writing in the first century, uh, fairly soon after Christ's uh, birth, life, death, and resurrection, and ascension. Uh, these people would remember the time before they were saved. So, he's saying, before you were converted, there was there was plenty of time for you to sin. And that's that's not Peter saying, like, it was okay that you sinned back then. But now, you have been saved, and there should be a change. And this is kind of what, uh, this leads into what Joseph was talking about. Um what kind of transformation do we experience upon conversion? So let's, let's talk about first um, spiritually and then practically. So what kind of spiritual transformation do we experience upon conversion? Yes, we get a new heart. Heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Good, what else? Yes, we have God himself living in our hearts. That's a fairly radical change, right? <laughs> Good. Uh, this makes me think of Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He, meaning God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So there is a, a real change from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of Christ, right? Um, that is an inward change. It's not, uh, you know, we're not picked up and moved physically, right? But that inward change needs to have a, uh, needs to manifest, manifest itself outwardly. So now let's talk about some of those outward changes. So how does that inward change manifest itself outwardly? We're different. We people can see a difference in us and how we behave, how we speak, what we do, what we don't do. Yeah, yeah, we are. Uh, we're, we're pilgrims. We're strangers. We are different than the world. Um, we are supernatural, right? We are. Uh, our nature has been changed, not to be become, you know, other than humans, right? But. We are to look different than the world, right? Otherworldly, you might say. Um, and that's what, that's what Peter's talking about in, in verse 4. Um, they're surprised when you don't do the things that they do. And I think that's... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I think it's especially uh, noticeable, like in college, you used to do all the parties, but now you don't go to any parties. Mm -hmm. It's pretty dramatic. Yeah, yeah. 
so, so particularly uh, when, when someone uh, is, is converted later in life, their, their friends, their family can see that change. But even someone you know, who was converted at a very young age, they're still different than, than those around them, right? They dress differently, they speak differently, they act differently, um, they think differently. And that's all, those are all outward manifestations of the inward change. I had a really good point, and I've forgotten. Oh yeah, so um, why are people, why does it surprise people that Christians do not join them in the flood of debauchery, as Peter says? Why is that surprising? Yeah. Sin feels good. Sin feels good, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, from from the fallen point of view, uh, right? If if there's no if there's no death, uh, life, death, resurrection of Christ, this then hmm? this is all you have. Yeah, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Um, that makes sense according to a fallen, sinful. A sort of heuristic, right? But we know because we have been, our minds have been transformed and are being transformed. We are arming ourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ. It does not make sense. I think another reason that people are, are surprised, and you might, you might even uh, add to surprised, uh, upset, is because we know that because we are all made in the image of God, we have the law of God written on our hearts. This is like Romans 1, right? Um, because we have the law of God written on our hearts, uh, unbelievers have the law of God written on their hearts. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And when you do not join them in their sin, it, it upsets them. This makes me think of uh, John 3, right? Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Uh, verse, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work, works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So we as Christians are light bearers in essence. Right? We're not bringing our own light. We're bringing uh, reflections of the light of Christ in us. And we are exposing their their deeds as evil and sinful, and they don't like that. People generally don't like being told that what they're doing is sinful. Okay, um, I have a good quote from the, the Reformation Heritage Study Bible. This is something that, uh, you know, we're not going to answer it now, but I want you to think about it. This is, it's, uh, that, that study Bible's comment on this section of the, of the, the text says, the difference made in anyone who is born again is that rebirth reverses his or her whole moral outlook. He now loves what before he hated and now hates what before he loved. So great a change is made in one who is truly converted that it may amaze his friends and neighbors. Has God changed you on the inside? How? And how has that inside change manifested itself on the outside? So think about that uh, throughout the day and the week. All right. Looking at verse, find where I am here. Looking at verse, uh, verse six, Peter says, "For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does." Uh, it's, Peter is probably referring to when he says the gospel is preached to those who are dead. He's probably talking about Christians who have died, probably from persecution. Okay, so. Keep that in your mind. What is the difference between being judged in the flesh the way people are and living in the Spirit the way God does? Uh, and, and the way the King James puts that phrase, I like it, it says, uh, live according to God in the Spirit. So what's the difference? what is the difference between those two things? Being judged the way people are and living according to God in the Spirit.
the reason God told Samuel to choose David instead of his brothers um, because God looks at the heart and not at you know the the brawny manpower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, humans uh, tend to look on the outside. God sees the heart. That's a that's a very good um, allusion to to David and Samuel. We are all going to be judged in the flesh by other people. That's just a reality of uh, human life, right? Um, I always laugh when I say uh, when I see the the tattoo. Only God can judge me. Um, it's kind of silly, I think. Um, because they're, I mean, they're built into our whole governmental system is a group of people that can judge you. But even beyond that, human nature. Yeah, human nature. We judge each other. This is probably not a good thing for me to do. So, sure. Discernment. Yeah, you can call it judgment, or you can call it discernment. Um, But we are. But what is more important to us, being uh, judged? In the flesh, the way people are, or living in the spirit, the way God does. What is more important? What is more important yes. <clears throat> yes. Well, man can kill the flesh, but that is all temporal because all flesh passes away regardless. Mm-hmm. It is God that judges the soul. Yes. And he's, he's also thinking about verse 5. Uh, they, non-believers, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So the world is able to judge us in the flesh, or the world judges us in the flesh, but the world will be judged by God who will judge the living and the dead. And then as I mentioned, this, uh, those who are dead um, very probably means those who have died for Christ. So, how does that change how we think about what Peter has to say? Remember, uh, remember to whom Peter is writing, and think about the next few hundred years of church history and what will happen to Christians in general, and probably some of these same Christians. <clears throat> that might be a confusing question, so I'll just tell you uh, what I have to think. <clears throat> So this is, this is um, in my mind, this intensifies our need to follow what Peter has to say here. So he's saying we need to live according to the Spirit. We need to live in the Spirit the way God does. We need to put away human passions and live for the will of God. We need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking, of, with the same way of thinking as Christ because there are people that the people to whom Peter is writing know, who have died for their faith. And that is a potential end for any Christian. And we'll talk about that more next week with, uh, like I said, don't, don't be surprised when suffering occurs. But this is just putting it into context, right? Um, it's not just... It's, the, the gospel should not just change the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, but it should change... Uh, the lengths to which you are ready to go for Christ, if that makes sense. Okay, let's move on to this last section, 7 through 11. I will read it again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so to what does the end of all things refer? I asked Pastor Mark this question because I was uncertain. I gave him two choices, and he said a third. So I was wrong on both of my options. C, always C. Yes, it's always C. Neither. 
Does it refer to the end of this earth, this world, and the coming of Jesus Christ in the new world? Yeah, so <clears throat> my my the two things that I thought of that this could refer to is, yes, the, the end of all things, the, the day of judgment, or um, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, Pastor Mark said that it, it refers to these last days, right? The kind of thing in Hebrews 1, verse 2, in these last days, um, the inter-advent period, which I think that's a cool word, right? Uh, between Christ's two comings, his first coming and his second coming. But I also told you, feel free to disagree. Yes, <laughs> you did tell me. Um, but in any case, so, so Peter is, is situating, again, he's situating what he's teaching. The end of all things is at hand. Uh, right? Uh, how does uh, how does John in, in Revelation come come Lord come Lord Jesus come quickly? Right. Um, so how does or how should the knowledge that the day of judgment is not far off cause us to live or change our lives? I'm thinking here about Matthew 25. Remember Matthew 25. Jesus is teaching. Uh, through parables, he gives the parables of the ten virgins. Um, speaks about the final judgment. He uh, the parable of the talents. Okay, so this is calling us to be ready for Christ's return. So, how should that knowledge cause us to live? Okay. He's coming back, and God forbid, none of us are ready when he comes. Mm-hmm. That's why Peter says here, be serious and watch for your prayers. Like, we should be praying for each other that we'll be prepared and ready for the day of Christ, and that mm-hmm. our children will be, and that unbelievers will repent before it's too late. Yeah. Yeah, it makes, it makes me think of, um, this might be a silly example, but, you know, in, in the Army, sometimes you have a, a 24-hour duty, and like a, we call it charge of quarters, CQ. So you're, you're, you're at the company all for 24 hours, and you're supposed to be awake and alert and in charge of the whole company. Um, and oftentimes the NCO who's in charge of the whole battalion will come and inspect the soldier on CQ, on charge of quarters. And oftentimes he finds that soldier not awake, or not alert, or not doing what he's supposed to do, right? Um, so that's what this makes me think of. We are we are to be self-controlled and sober-minded because we don't know when Christ is going to return. And yeah, like Joseph said, we don't want to be uh, unready or unworthy when Christ returns. Does this knowledge that the day of judgment is not far off, does this give you hope or dread and why? And... You can think about that question in your mind and um, pray about that. Because we need to move on to verse 8. Verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So why love above all? Well, it is because by love... God sent his son to cover all our sins. It wasn't by hope or any other godly virtue. It was by love. Likewise, horizontally, as we do the one another's, we ought to be motivated by love for another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what... What does this make you think of? What what passage does this call to mind? Maybe First Corinthians thirteen. Right, First Corinthians thirteen. Verse thirteen says, "So now faith, hope, and love abide; these three, but the greatest of these is love." It's not to say that faith and hope are bad, or that we shouldn't have faith or we shouldn't have hope, but love is above all. When it talks about covering multitude of sins. My study notes indicate that love keeps no record of wrongs, mm-hmm. but forgives in response to God's forgiveness. Yes, and that is great, but can we come back to that in a couple minutes? You can do whatever you want. <laughs>
Thank you. <laughs> so uh, let's think about union with Christ. We, we talked about that at the beginning. We talked about um, arming ourselves with the same mind as Christ because we are united with Christ. And this is, again, uh, a callback to the lesson that I taught on uh, the Holy Spirit in the Christian life, union with Christ. I said that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 principally describes one person. Who is that? Jesus, right? So how does the fact that 1 Corinthians 13, the, the chapter on love, that that describes Christ, how does that connect with our call to love in 1 Peter Four verse eight. Yeah, yeah. We we are supposed to love what Christ loves and hate what Christ hates. We're called to be imitators of Christ, right? Uh, we are united with Christ. Christ loved us so much that He uh, gave Himself to be our sacrifice, sacrifice for our sins, and we are to love in that same way towards others, right? Um, he uses the adjective earnest. Let's love, uh, or keep loving one another earnestly. Why earnestly? What does earnestly mean? Genuine, right? Um, at, uh, Romans twelve nine, love be genuine. Okay, good. So, why does Peter add this this adjective genuine? Why, or excuse me, earnestly? Why did Paul add the adjective genuine? Why is why does our love need to be earnest and genuine? Husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church. Husbands should be loving their wives to the point where their wives, their wives are unworthy. And then we just have a shadow of Christ's love for us and Christ's love for his church. That's cool. Yeah. Um, is, is love that is not earnest love? No. Right. It's something else. Have you ever experienced love that is not earnest? Well, we'll think about specifically in um, the body of Christ in the church. Have Either you given someone love that is not earnest, or have you felt that someone loved you uh, disingenuously? What is the problem with that? I'm not sure we all have done both, right? What's the problem with that? I mean, we already said it, right? It's, it's not love. You're not, you're not doing what Christ did. Was Christ's love for us earnest and genuine? Yes, to the point of um, allowing himself to die on the cross for people who hate him. That is very earnest and genuine. And he gives us the, the command that our, that our love, that we love another, one another earnestly because we are often tempted not to love one another earnestly. We're tempted to give the show of love without the substance. Um, so that's something that we need to, we need to keep reminding of ourselves of. And then now, uh, D, you can answer this question. How does love cover a multitude of sins? Love keeps no record of wrongs, but forgiveness in response to God's forgiveness. Yes. So are we... Are we... When we love other people earnestly, even when they sin against us, are we um, expiating their sins? Are we what? Um, Abolishing them. Abol- yeah. They no longer exist. I, I can't think of a simpler word. Um, forgiving their sins in the, in the true sense, like Christ forgives our sins. No, right? It's um, Christ is the one who forgives their sins. We cannot... Um, 
We cannot do that. We can forgive. Uh, yeah, but then you have no advantage over the other person. Yes. That's you true. Yeah. Yes, that's true. And that's a good thing. But that's that's not Christian love. Right. And you, and that is only loving them to get something back out of it. Yes. And again, that is something to which we are tempted often. Right. The for, forgiving so that you can um, have something to bring up later. Um, or if you mess up, then you say, "Well, remember that one time." I forget. <laughs> that is that that is certainly keeping a record of wrongs, and that is not what love is. So we are called to forgive others earnestly, uh, love them earnestly, and forgive them when they offend us, because Christ forgave us earnestly. And this is why um, part of sanctification is learning. Not only how great God is and how great his love is, but how sinful you are. Because when you learn more about how sinful you are and how much of your sin, all of it, God forgave through Christ and the Holy Spirit, you are rendered more likely to forgive others when they sin against you because their offenses against you are not, uh, don't even come close to our offenses against God. Okay? Good. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another. So, uh, what is hospitality? Welcoming people. Yep, welcoming people. How can we show it without grumbling? Again, there's this this qualifier that Peter gives. Show hospitality without grumbling. How can we do it? How can we be hospitable without grumbling? By reflecting on God's hospitable heart towards us, He welcomed us into the household of God, yeah. despite our you know, unworthiness and our sinfulness. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you don't. When I think of hospitality, I don't think of showing hospitality to my children because they live in my house, right? You generally, I think, we show hospitality to strangers, to people from somewhere else. Um, so God showed hospitality to us because we were not just strangers, but we were at enmity with God. We were in the domain of darkness, remember uh, Colossians 1. And he brought us out of the kingdom of darkness, put us into his kingdom, and invited us into his house to be his son or his daughter. That is true hospitality. And so hospitality should not be a burden. It should be something that we give and show uh, willingly because of what has been done to us. We have to rely on the strength that God provides. Yes, yes, exactly. It's not always going to be receiving according to what is represented. Yeah. It's yeah, absolutely. So all of this, uh, you, you know, all of the imperatives that Peter has given to us, um, we cannot do on our own. We cannot love one another earnestly without the Spirit. We cannot show hospitality without the Spirit. We cannot arm ourselves with the same way of, th- as, of thinking as Christ without the Spirit. So, yes, we are called to, uh, to do and to work in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that reminder. Okay, uh, verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so the final sentence puts verses 10 and 11 into, into view, into context, I guess you could say. How does... The final verse, not not the Amen, the, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. How does that put verses 10 and 11 into context for us? I think it just means work heartily as unto the Lord. So everything that we do needs to be for our chief end, which is to glorify him. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Peter's saying that we all are gifted in some way, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. 
I think often we are tempted, we say, I'm gifted in A, and I can use A to serve other people, sort of, but mainly it's so that I feel good about myself, or I look good in front of other people, or other people say, you're really good at that. Um, but the overall context of using our gifts to serve one another is the glory, dominion of God the Father. Uh, in everything, that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So, um, is everyone for, uh, excuse me, is everyone gifted by God? Yes. Yes. In what way? Well, as it says here, who's those? There are people that can lead, there are people that can serve. So you, you have your each has your have, everybody has their own individual gifts that God brings forth for His greater glory. Yeah. So can can everyone speak oracles of God? No. No. Can everyone serve? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are uh, what uh, Jesus says. I think it's in in Luke. Um, at the end of your life, you should look back and say, you know, I am just an unworthy servant. I'm an unprofitable servant. Um, so we're all, we are called to service. Martin Luther talked about the way of the cross. It's the way of suffering, the way of service. It's not the way of glory, which was kind of what the, the Roman Catholic Church was, was teaching. So we are, we can all serve and we should all serve. We are all called to serve. And again, we are called to serve because God has given us a gift, but ultimately we are called to serve for the glory of God the Father through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Okay. And that's, you know, when we think about sort of ranking um, ranking the, the goals of service, right? We glorify God first and then we serve others and service to ourself. It's not third, it's not tenth, it's, it's just not there, right? But because we have remaining sin, because we are still sinners, that creeps in, and that's a call to remain vigilant in fighting against that through the power of the Spirit. Okay, next week we're going to talk about 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19, the rest of chapter 4, talking about suffering again. So, I want you guys to think about think about church history in the first 400 years of the church. Um, think about Peter's own history. What did you know? If you know anything about Peter, what do you know about Peter? He denied Christ to escape suffering. Right. So here he's teaching about suffering. How does that work? I think this is, I'm I'm really excited to teach next week on uh, Peter teaching about suffering because I think it's a a great uh, picture of God's grace. God, Christ restored Peter, and now, even though he failed before, he is able to teach uh, other believers about suffering. And, you know, we know according to church history, Peter was martyred, uh, you know, hung, hung on a cross upside down. Uh, so he, he gained the victory in the end, even though he failed in the beginning. And that's that's comforting, okay? Uh, anything else to say about this lesson? Anything that I missed or got wrong or that you would just like to add? Okay, can I have someone close us in prayer, please? Okay, okay. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we thank you for, again, for this time that you've given to us to read your word. Thank you for Peter and his service, first of all, to you and then uh, to your church, to your saints throughout history. Pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, use this word that we read this morning to continue us on the path of sanctification, that you would Show us our sin more clearly. Show us your grace more fully. And that we would, through the power of the Spirit, mortify our sins, put away the old man, 
and live for you and your glory and your kingdom and the good of your church. We thank you, Jesus, that you that you sacrificed yourself on our behalf for your bride, the church. We pray that now as we move to corporate worship, that you would help us to focus on who you are and what you've done for us, and that our grateful and glad response would be worship in song, in the reading of scripture, in the preaching of the word, and in the sacraments. May we worship you as you deserve for your glory. For all these things in Christ's name, through your spirit. Amen.